The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. Welcome, everyone. This is The Wind Was a Beginning. This is a podcast where nerdy friends talk about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. This is Season 2, Episode 3, This Young Man Needs a Wife. Hello and welcome to The Wind Was a Beginning, a podcast where three nerdy friends get together to talk about The Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan's masterpiece. Uh, I'm here tonight joined by Justin. Hello there. And Michelle. Howdy, guys. And we are going to be talking about chapters six through eight of The Great Hunt. So if you haven't read those yet, uh, please hit pause on us. You can come back. We'll be here waiting on you. But uh, go read those and then come join us. Uh, For those of you that are still here, we're ready to dive on in. So let's keep going. Uh, How's everybody doing this week? Uh, Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Yeah. (laughs) I found found some sunglasses yesterday that I thought were lost for good, and that made me happy. (laughs) Oh, that was a good, that's a good feeling. A lost, lost sunglasses, lost t-shirts, and lost socks. Uh, Those are like sock, the, the, lost, gra- the greatest pleasures. Lost socks never come back. They're often like Narnia somewhere, but uh, uh, but it's only always it's only ever one sock. Right? It's never a pair. Right. It's uh, it's always just the one. And then you got this this lone sock that's that's lost their partner forever, and you know it's kind of a kind of a sad day. And uh, you know I don't know um, when it comes back from the void though, it feels really good. I don't think oh, they come. Man. I don't think they come back though. It happens once every like six years or so. You just uh, you you might have just missed it. You, you maybe must, during a nap or something. You, you must be living in some other some other galaxy then, because it doesn't happen here. <laughs> once they're gone, they're gone. Well, uh, she's got the perspective of somebody who's moving. You always find random things you that's never true. expected to that's, find again that, when you're that's moving. A good that's point. true. I've I found a lot of things, including a dollar. So I've, I'm feeling pretty <laughs> rich right now. <laughs> That reminds me, and, and I'll just say this, I remember when uh, my wife and I lived in Tennessee for a year, and we were getting ready to move, and I think as we were like getting everything packed up and ready, I found like 50 bucks that we'd been given at our wedding, like somewhere, <laughs> so that made that made my day. That was like, I don't want to say how many years ago, but <laughs> uh, it was like 10, 11 years ago that we moved, so... I don't know whether to congratulate you or judge you for losing 50 bucks that was gifted to you during your wedding. <laughs> I guess it just got, it, it, you know, there was so much that it just got kind of mixed in. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I don't know. Again, that was a long time ago. That 50 bucks is long gone. So, but I just thought that was a fun story when you talk about finding, finding stuff when you move. Well, guys, are y'all ready to, uh, to jump into this tonight? Y'all I, excited? I am ready. Let's go. I'm definitely ready. I'm definitely ready. All right. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to start with Chapter 6, Dark Prophecy. 
Awakened from a horrible dream, Rand learns that Egwene had gone to visit Padden Fane again, not long before the alarm bells pull Rand into a waking nightmare of Faldara Keep under attack. Rushing to the dungeon to find Egwene, he only finds carnage and the ominous writing in the guardroom. Further in, Egwene and Matt lay unconscious on the floor. Padden Fane is gone. Matt's dagger is gone. The Horn of Valir is gone. Many mysteries abound, not the least of which is who let the shadow spawn in. Man, this this chapter was just like one. It it was, it was, Robert Jordan's version of a series of unfortunate events. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. No. Seriously. It was like one bad thing to another, and it just it just kept getting worse. I mean, just just starting with that dream, um, I, I was afraid I was going to have nightmares. After reading that dream, I mean, it was just so disturbing with everything that that Rand was seeing, especially the part with Perrin, right? Yeah, <laughs> that was that was some that was dark. Uh, that that was just that was almost too much, but uh, we got through it. You know what's good though? I feel like after going through book one, it's like we can now tell that he's in a dream. It's like, we can tell, like, okay, this isn't, like, I don't know what's happening here, but I know that this isn't real. Yeah. You know what's odd, though? I don't remember him going to bed. Well, I, Do you think this it, just kind of happened, overtook him? It, it happened off screen, I think. It happened off screen. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> it, was, it happened behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. It, it would have happened when, when, when he was taken uh, to Egwene's room sometime afterwards, he fell asleep. So Yeah. He was basically just hiding in her room and just dozed off, basically. Yeah. Because I was wondering if it was, um, like, you know how Harry Potter used to get, like, Voldemort's visions? And right. it kind of just overtook him. I was wondering if it was something like that, where some kind of strong force just kind of overtakes him, no matter where he is, whether he's awake or sleeping. Yeah. Well, that does raise um, a question, because uh, Baalzaman does make an appearance in this dream, but... My 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 question is 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 it the same as those dreams that we saw throughout book one or or is this just a nightmare? Me personally, I I feel like it was just a nightmare and ba- Balzaman just happened to make an appearance. That's that's the way I read it. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I agree with you, Justin, and it's just because there didn't really seem to usually with the dreams that the the dreams quote unquote that we had like in the last book it was like the the Baalzaman was trying to contact him and kind of send some kind of a message this just seemed like a really bad nightmare yeah like there was it seemed like I I, I don't want to say that there was no point to the dream but it just seemed like it's just something terrible that happened maybe it was his fears manifesting in dream world but the other stuff I mean it just felt like oh yeah we're gonna meet in your dreams because this is the only way I can get you mm-hmm. I tend to think it's Less of a Beelzemon dream, but more substantial than just a typical nightmare. To me, it still seems odd and a little bit more surreal than a normal dream would. But I don't think there's uh, Beelzemon pulling the strings in the background, necessarily. But I do think there is something going on here that's a little more than just a typical average nightmare. So you said maybe that's just me. You think it's somewhere in the middle between the two? Yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, either way, it was um, creepy. Man, uh, the last thing I would want to do after a dream like that would be go back to sleep. But I also think I would be a little smarter than Rand. Um because <laughs> he wakes up and you know Nynaeve's there and they begin talking and and what does he do but he goes and names the dark one uh believe he's still still believing that all the danger is past and well he he believes he's killed the dark one so why sure. should naming him be a problem uh well i know many folks have said more than once that uh don't they're they're not quite sure that he is dead but uh rand is convinced uh, to the point of foolishness. I've never seen this effect before. You know what I mean? Because this time, I feel like he. This isn't the first time he's named a dark one, right? I've never seen this strong as an, of an effect, um, from just saying the name, where you could even feel the force, kind of like you could feel it, like kind of lurk once he said it. I've never. I I feel like this is not the first time he said it, or maybe I've. Maybe they've always said dark one and. We only hear Baalzaman in the dreams or something, but I was really surprised here. Yeah, yeah they. It, I don't think they ever actually use his proper name, like naming him. I think they start to at one point, and Moraine instructs them that if they're going to speak of him, then use Baalzaman. Don't uh, say his name. Uh, you know, the only other reference we have to like. We're told over and over in the first book how that to name the Dark One is foolish. How, you know, that person in the Two Rivers, Matt, said named him and then like all his crops died. You know, we're kind of led to believe there at the beginning that it's superstitious. But now we kind of see this and maybe it's less superstition and more uh, rule wisdom. Yeah, something. Maybe there really is something to it. Something actually happened when he did that. And. And, and Nynaeve noticed it. She she saw the effect come over him. Yeah. Um, so there, there's definitely something going on. I, I wanted to say I felt like like once, maybe right after he had fought Baalzaman, he might have said the name. But I could be mis. I know he said it once in a dream because he yeah. woke up and he was wondering if saying it in the dream had the same effect. I could be misremembering. I know no, what you're... I know the thing you're talking about where he started to say it and Moraine cut him off. Yeah. But I was feeling like that, maybe he had said it another time, but I could be. He definitely did say it in the dream at yeah. least once. He may have done it more than once maybe. in a dream. Maybe. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have the same effect. Right. Um, and I think you may be right. I'd have to go back and look, but you may be right that he did say it right after the battle at the end of first book. Um, but given where they were located and the severity of, you know, we saw after that point, you know, spring came, but basically I think maybe there was a little less effect at that point if he did say it because the severe blow that had been dealt to the dark one. Right. This is a few months later. The dark has had a chance to kind of gather itself back together. Um, that That's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that uh, end of it, but you're, you're definitely right that, uh, the dark has probably regrouped a little bit by this point because right then yeah. there had been just a massive blow dealt and yeah, maybe yeah. it was just the weak. He, he was too weak at that moment, but now definitely something's going on. Um, but we don't really have a whole lot of time to dwell on that. Do we? Not at all. <laughs> because, uh, 
alarm bells start ringing, and we soon find out that the uh, Faldara Keep is under attack, and not just under attack, but under attack from uh, Trollocs, and was it was it more than one fade, or was there just the one? I only saw the one. It's alluded to that there was more than one, but we only see one. Okay, I, I was I was trying to figure that out whether or not uh, yeah. whether or not there were multiple fades, or if it yeah. was just the one. So we're only shown one, and only want to talk about. But it is alluded that there was more than one, possibly there, um, because there yeah. were some events that we'll learn about that took place. Sure. That would have required more than a Trollocs hand to you, get them done. You, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Did you guys all get kind of the feeling that all of this was just a distraction? Oh, yeah. Like, they just kind of like, oh, let's just throw a couple of Trollocs in there and let's add a fade, too. The, like, it's just, it just seemed like a little distraction. Yeah, the real, uh, the real mission was down in the dungeons. Yep. Well, well, not not only in the dungeons, but there, the dungeons and the uh, 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 what's the wherever the the horn was being kept, the treasure room. Yeah, I, I do think some of it was was like you said a distraction to maybe draw men away from those areas, so that those who were going to those places could do the job they were sent to do. It also you know gives I... the those uh, four, you know. Pat and Fane and others time to escape right. in the chaos. Right. Trollocs are expendable. You know what's interesting? It's just learning so much more about the Trollocs. Like, they can write. They have their own <laughs> language. Yeah. Like, what? Yep. It's like something new every chapter. Like, yeah. what What else can you guys do? Yeah. I think we saw a little bit of that in um, book one when they were in the ways. There was the place where tro- Trollocs had been... Yeah, carving something on some of the way uh, the the uh, guiding stones, but this goes even further than that, I think. Um, and it seems like whatever they were writing was really vulgar. Oh yeah. So I'm yeah. like, Charlocks are like they're just trolls, just literal. It's in their name. They're just trolls, literally. <laughs> well. Just coming in, vandalizing walls, writing vulgar things everywhere just just spreading it around there didn't seem to be many did there uh, we just saw a handful i think i didn't get yeah. the sense maybe we've just been kind of traumatized by being on the borderlands but i didn't get the sense that oh there's there's tons of trollocs and everything around here no i don't think this was even right, this is basically a raiding party i think is what yeah. this is it's not a, a full squad it's not a fist yeah. uh it's just they're basic the trollocs are just basically there to cause chaos and panic yeah. They're not really there. The Trollocs are not there to accomplish an objective other than what they're there. They're basically there for brute force. That's about the extent of it. The Fades are who are really there causing the issue. And what some issues they caused. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, utter, I I think I used the word carnage. In, in in the dungeons in the guardroom, wow. some of some of it I don't even want to talk about. Um, uh, I've never seen that much. Like that was the most violent scene we've had yet, isn't it? I think so. Uh, you, like like the you, that was pure mu- mutilation, mutilation yeah, you, of, of you these finally, soldiers. You finally, Michelle, now have the answer to the question: What do Trollocs eat? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, 
straight mutilation. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, with talking about that, uh, there are some interesting things that they find, along with all the mutilation and carnage when they get down there, um, such as the guy who literally hangs himself in front of Rand, even though he could have stood up at any time. Uh, so, I mean, there's, and there's repeated instances, that guy, another guy trying so hard to escape that he's basically destroying his hands to try and crawl through brick. Because uh, they're that terrified. And basically, whatever happened down in that dungeon was severe enough that it drove one guy to suicide and another one to pure madness. <laughs> uh, and can you blame them? No. Can't blame them at all. So, uh, with that, I guess what's. I guess the next thing we come across is, uh, you know, Rand finds the writing that's obviously been left for him by Patton Fane. And then decides, okay, I've got to make sure this doesn't get uh, noticed. So I'll just wipe it away. And then here comes an Aes Sedai. <laughs> let, let, me, let me wipe it away vigorously with some yeah. straw. And no one, no one's going to notice what I'm scrubbing. Yeah. Oh, Rand. Yeah. Rand. Let's destroy some evidence. Uh, <laughs> like, excitedly. Well, not, I don't, let's not look back and forth. Let's just do it. I, I don't think... I, I think he was just panicked. And that was the first thing that came to his mind. Like, not, not that, not so much that he wanted it to be gone so nobody else could see it, but it just frightened him so much and pushed him over an edge to where he didn't want to look at it anymore. And so he started scrubbing it off the walls. I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't read, I mean, essentially it was what he was doing, but I didn't read it as though he's trying to destroy evidence. I read it as he. Oh. He he doesn't want to, you know. This is just shocks him so bad, and that's how he reacted. See, I I I disagree completely. That the the writing there is basically Patton Fane calling him out by name, uh, drawing, you know, basically singling him out amongst everyone else in the party. And I think he, in his mind, he knows that there's now a keep full of Aes Sedai, and he doesn't want this horrible thing that's happened down here to be like, he doesn't want nosy people to connect his name with what happened down here in the dungeon. <laughs> and, and I've got to side with Steven here as well. I mean, he's over here, even though he's terrible at it, he's trying to hide and not be noticed. Here we are with, with, with all this carnage and mutilation. And then my name's on the wall. Yeah. Nah. I, <laughs> I, I see your point, but to me, it's still just, it felt more like a visceral reaction than anything, but I, I see your I see your point. But I, I think I, I I guess we're leaning to different sides of the spectrum, uh, kind of kind of the same thing, but just on different sides of it. But I, I want to say something about who he runs into. Oh yes, and you know, Stephen, you put a question in the doc about Leandrin, but my question is. What is she doing down here in the dungeons to begin with? To me, it's kind of suspicious that she happens oh, yes. to be the one to just turn up uh, in the midst of this carnage. Everything else that's going on in in in, in the keep, you know, Rand had a reason for being down here because Rand was, you know, this is the la this is the last place he knew of that Egwene was going to be, 
And so he, he that was what was on his mind. What's Leandrin doing down here? <laughs> Guys, I have a question for you. What are the odds? You know how uh, Moraine was able to track the boys by giving them those coins? What are the odds that Leandrin has done something like this to Rand, Matt, and Perrin? What do you guys, is that possible? Can uh, I so I do that? She could technically do that, but she would have had to have given them something that they accepted from her. Okay. So it's not just like she could just slip something on them and them not know about it. They would have to have taken something from her. And it has to be an item that she can't just do that? Because, I, so I, I am suspicious of Leandrin, and I already told you guys I think she is a black Aja, but the only way I can kind of explain why she's down there is that she could feel that Rand was down there, so she came down there too. But it looked like she came down there with a mission, and I'm with you, Justin. Someone needs to do something about Leandrin. She needs to be wiped out. But it makes for a great story, so I'll I'll allow it for now. Yeah. It's it's clear I, it's clear that Moraine doesn't trust her. No. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, Justin, with with your comment about like why is she down there? She's not there right away, and she's not there quick enough. Like she's not waiting in wait, like lying in wait for him, because obviously he does have time to wipe away the straw and to see what all is happening before she shows up. It could just be because she basically had this keep. She had all the women in the keep turning this place upside down, looking for him and the other boys. It could just be that with the huge show Rand just put on upstairs, running through the women's apartments, waving a sword, that the women just reported to her, hey, the guy you're looking for, he went that way. <laughs> uh, uh, it's To me, it feels a little bit more suspicious than that, but, uh, you know. I, I'm going to say it. I kind of enjoyed Rand getting his brain squeezed. I think someone needs to do something to that brain. Uh, it d hasn't had the proper amount of stimulation. And maybe this is what Rand needs to kick him into gear. So I, I understand I shouldn't say that. I, I apologize, but I really enjoyed that. And I think it was well-deserved. Wow. So, 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 so you're okay with what Leandrin does to him. You think yes. he needed it. He needed it. I don't like her. I don't like her, but Rand is starting to get on my nerves a little bit. Like he does the opposite of everything that he's supposed to do, and I noticed that he kind of uh, I, I liked his behavior a little bit afterwards. Like he he seemed to have calmed down a bit. So yeah. maybe it needs to happen a little bit more often. I, I don't know, but I, I did enjoy it. Well, someone needs to bring okay, him to then. his knees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're gonna have to disagree on that one. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think I'm ever in the camp of torture being a good thing. Don't think of it as torture. Think of it as like, you know, a little severe form of discipline. Uh, that's about, <laughs> let's just no, reword it a little bit. No, it's all about no, the mindset. No, because she was trying to get something from him. Yeah. That, she's that, basically, that she's trying to rip knowledge out of his brain. Yeah. <laughs> that, that qualifies as torture, not discipline. Uh, but that might be the least of our worries. Yeah. Because there are things and people missing. Uh, actually, we said this in the, the summary. Padden Fane is gone. Uh, Matt's dagger is gone, which he still has to keep on his person to survive until he can get to Tarvalin and have that link broken. So with the dagger gone, Matt's in danger. Well, well more, more than he was. 
it's a real shame because Moraine had even talked with the Omerlin about it. They were going to break that seal yes. and, and save him while they were there right. because all the I said I were there. And now they yeah. just can't. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. And how about the other item that's missing? Yep. The Horn of Valir is gone. And was it at this point or was it a little bit later we get the uh, information that, you know, yeah, when the horn is blown, those heroes are going to come back to fight for whoever blows the horn, not necessarily for the light. I think that's actually later on in the next chapter with the Amarillan and Moraine. But, but it's significant here. It's, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's that's uh, definitely a big, big problem. We do uh-huh. we do not want it in the hands of dark friends. So and and you know last last episode we we kind of wondered we assumed that Padden Fane was uh, being busted out. We get that confirmation. We don't know who did it still. Uh, just yeah. like we don't know you know who let the shadow spawn in anything like that. But um, we know that that's what they were doing. They were breaking Padden Fane out. That this was all organized, an organized attack, no matter any way we spin it. Yeah. And we clearly have multiple spies here. People that, someone knew about the Horn of Valir. Uh, Dark friends already know about Matt's dagger. Um, we There's clearly not even just one spy here. There's multiple dark friends here that are just kind of hiding. Hiding out, like, you know, kind of creeping around. Um and may even be one of the Aes Sedai as well. <laughs> Someone that we really trust. Who knows? But uh, this is confirmation for me. Like, wow, we really do have tons of spies, tons of dark friends here that are just working together, kind of planning this planning this escape. I mean, who gave the order to close the gate? How do they know that Pat and Fane is down there? Uh, How do they know to take Matt's dagger, the Horn of Valair, bring the Trollocs to Fades? I mean, this is an organized attack with multiple dark friends. Yeah, well, the the question of, you know, who gave the order to close the gates, because I think it's at the end of this chapter, we find out that an order has come down from Lord Agomar that the gates are to be closed, nobody is to be allowed out of the keep. And I think Rand, you know, questions that is like, wasn't that already, you know, what do you mean when, when he heard, what do you mean when, when all this happened? And you know, I think it's Ingtar says there was no order previously. Yeah. So I have my suspicions about this one. Oh, really? We already okay. found out during the last episode that Leandrin has this gift of kind of compelling someone to do what she wants. Um, I what are the odds that she kind of compelled the 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 gatekeepers? I guess to to keep the gate closed, don't allow anyone in or out. I told you, I, I think she's a black Aja. I, I really suspect it. I like where your mind's going there, but I don't think she would have had time. Uh, okay. Because when Rand is trying to escape through those guardhouses, the Omerlin and all of her party are still out in the courtyard being greeted by Agulmar. Okay. They haven't. There wouldn't have been time for her to do that. So, uh, so we can rule her out. Not that she's not capable, but timeline just doesn't fit for her to have been the one that gave the order. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's obviously, it, it's got to be an inside job. Oh yeah, and 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 for a moment, Rand even looks at Ingtar suspiciously. Uh, you know, he, he's getting it, a little paranoid. You know, Rand it's a little too late. Rand's getting to the point. I don't think he trusts anybody. And he's not. He's <laughs> not doing a good job of showing it. 
Yeah. If you don't trust anyone, maybe you should leave. And he still can't bring yeah. himself to do that. Uh, Y'all have any other points before we move on to the next chapter? No, no I think we should yet. go on into chapter seven. All right. Uh, you want to take this one, Justin? I sure can. Okay. Uh, chapter seven, Blood Calls Blood. After helping heal Matt, Varen of the Brown Aja speaks with Moraine and the Amerlin of a dark prophecy written on the walls in the dungeons, before revealing that she has figured out that one of the two Rivers boys can channel and assumes that he's the Dragon Reborn. Later, Perrin visit Matt's in the infirmary before returning to their rooms where Rand tries to apologize, but Perrin isn't quite ready to accept it. Rand, however, has bigger things to worry about when Lan enters and starts preparing him for an audience with the Amarlin seat. Uh, I find it interesting that the previous chapter was called Dark Prophecy, when this is the one where we really find out about the Dark Prophecy. Uh, <laughs> so, there were a... Well, and I guess the chapter title comes from part of that prophecy, which is the repeated line, Blood Calls Blood. Uh, but there are a lot of things that we we get, a lot of little nuggets of information. Uh, I probably don't think we have time to cover every bit of it. Um, but there are some things that the Aes Sedai talk about that came out of that prophecy. Should we should we read some of those sections? I don't think it would hurt. Okay. So the first one. Uh, at the very beginning of, uh, of, of what Varen is reading to them. Daughter of the night, she walks again. The ancient war she yet fights. Her new lover she seeks. Who shall serve her and die, yet still, yet serve still. Who shall stand against her coming? The shining walls shall kneel. Blood feeds blood. Blood calls blood. Blood is and blood was and blood shall ever be. And when they're discussing uh, what this means. She mentioned they they mentioned that it's someone called Lanfear, <laughs> who is one of the Forsaken, and they believe that it means that she's been set free, or at least the prophecy is alluding to that. But they also say at the same time that it can't be. That would it would basically be disaster if that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. They don't want to believe that it could actually have happened. And, and it looks like she had a messy relationship as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of threw that in there. And it seemed like it's not even it's not even the fact that she might be it might be awakened. It it seemed like the biggest fear was the fact that she's a lover scorned mm. <laughs> and she's gonna come back and have revenge on that aspect. At least that's yep. what I that's what I uh that's what it seemed like to me. So one thing, one thing that I took from from their discussion was: is Swan really unaware that some of the Forsaken have been loosed? Because she says something think- about about the Forsaken still being bound, and surely, surely Moraine's told her what happened at the Eye. Well, I think what's happening here is at this point, and this is soon going to crumble on them. But at this point, they're still not sharing information with Varen. Uh, you know, there she's revealing what she knows of this prophecy, but Varen hasn't revealed that she knows about them yet. And so I think the Isis, Omerlin probably knows exactly who 
Moraine fought. I'm sure Moraine filled her in on that. But she's not going to make that common knowledge. Okay. It's all that would do is cause a panic. So she's basically she's quoting the company line right <laughs> okay. now. Okay. So it's basically <laughs> basically because Varen's there. Yeah. And she doesn't want to reveal too much. In yeah, all I honesty, think that's exactly what it is. And in, in all honesty, until Varen had revealed, like, hey, I know I know what's happening here. I don't really trust anything that was discussed beforehand. Like, I wouldn't take any of the surprises or, like, the awareness or whatever seriously just because I know that they're kind of faking it because um, Varen is there. Like, like trying to talk in code or whatever. Um, but I, I did like the aspect <laughs> that Varen is just like, I, I know. <laughs> and, and you guys just sold it out to me. She is a brown Aja. I mean, you can't really get much past them. Yeah, and, and that's one thing uh, that, you know, I think we learn about them is that they are, you know, for for all of what Moraine said before about them not knowing that the world is even there, Varen is quite astute. Uh, but we'll, we'll, I think we talk more about that in a minute. Let's talk a little bit more. Uh, about, yeah, about some of these prophecies. About some of these prophecies. Uh, I'm going to skip down to uh, the third stanza. Because um, the second one, I think, is pretty simple to understand. The man who can channel, uh, you know, standing with at a crossroads, so to speak. I think we know who that's talking about. So let's skip down to um, the stir- third stanza. Luke came to the mountains of doom. Isam waited in high passes. The hunt is now begun, begun. The shadows hounds now course and kill. One did live and one did die, but both are. The time of change has come. So Luke, we find out, was brother to Tigrain, who at that time, at, at a previous time, was the daughter heir of Andor. He had vanished into the blight. And then this other fellow, Assam, only one person knows who that is. And that's Moraine. Yep. She knows that he was the son of Brayan, who was the wife of Lane Mandragoran. She was the one who pretty much ultimately caused the downfall of Malkir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but Esam is Lane's cousin. Yeah, but it's said that she and her son disappeared, and Moraine seems to think it's possible he's still alive somewhere. Yeah. And she doesn't want Land to find out. <laughs> right. Yeah, that'd be um, bad. So. It's hard enough to keep him from just, you know, running off to avenge his people on a this close to the Blight. Yeah. If he found out he actually had blood relatives that might still be out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I find that kind of interesting, though, because he seems so dedicated to being, a, you know, a warder. I, I don't, I can't imagine Land running off somewhere, no matter how much he wants to. I can't imagine him leaving Moraine. I don't think he would. He wouldn't break his bond to Moraine, but he would be constant. Like if he found out, he would constantly be trying to figure out reasons for them to have to go there. She would constantly be trying to. Uh, work situations to that and he would constantly be distracted and distraught he wouldn't be focused moraine want in as much as they are friends and partners moraine 
you learn this, I think, through book one. She views other people a lot of times as tools for the purpose that she needs them. She does not want one of her best tools to suddenly become distracted. It's bad enough that she has to deal with him being all doughy-eyed over Nynaeve. He doesn't need another distraction. (laughs) I picked that up when uh, she was thinking about Matt earlier in the chapter. You know, it was almost like, you know, like you said, they're just tools or like, uh, you know, pieces on a chessboard or stones on a stones board that she's just trying to maneuver and get to where they need to be for her purposes. I agree. Chapter seven, like this really solidified it for me. Like it's, there's no, I guess, emotional attachment to anyone, even Suan. It's all about, you know, how is this going to play into what I'm looking for or what I believe needs to happen? They're all just, like you said, just pieces on a chessboard. It's all about the cause. (laughs) It's all about the cause. Uh, With Justin, real quick, you made an allusion to it, so I wanted to bring this up. So, Moraine, uh, when this all starts, they're talking about Matt, and, uh, you know, they've managed to heal him, and they're like, you know, what's going to happen with him now? And Moraine, in her head, is thinking that maybe he's not important anymore because the horn is gone. Right. So I, I picked up on that. Two, why is that a thing? Do you guys remember? Uh, no. <laughs> is Michelle? it, it uh, uh, that he's not important anymore because the horn is gone? Well, there was a scene back in book one. It was like the first time they started like not speaking in tongues, but started speaking their, their language or whatever when they were like riding into battle. Didn't it seem like Matt was the only one that could kind of use the horn? So, what you're talking about is where Matt speaks in the old tongue. Yeah. Uh, that's not really connected to the horn, uh, but that's a great callback that he does, there is something going on with Matt there. But, uh, specifically, what Moraine is alluding to here goes back to chapter 15 of book one, Strangers and Friends, and our lovely... 15. Lovely oh. fortune teller men. I right, hold on. I got. I, I got to go find. I got to go to the, go find that wow. doc. How did I not pick up on that? Because I he's have been. Really, he's really taking this back. I have been all about searching through men's visions. Sure enough, there there's a horn that was mentioned. Yep. yep. And the other one has shows a red eagle, an eye on the balance scale, a dagger with a ruby, and a horn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, Moraine is remembering back to what men said. Uh, huh. So, I just had to call back to that, because you did bring up that little bit, and I just I could not mention it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for bringing that up. So, so, we're saying Moraine maybe thinks that Matt is the one that's supposed to blow the horn? Or he's at least in some way importantly tied to it. Sure. Um, mm. All right. <laughs> Uh, okay, back to uh, back to tonight's episode. <laughs> I, I was I had to look at our our doc from the uh, the review episode where we listed all of those things. I need to put that in like another file and keep it keep it on hand. Seriously, uh, <laughs> so we can write it so on we a can, postcard or something. Yeah, we can call back to it as needed. Uh, okay, one more part of this prophecy. It's just a couple of lines uh, to mention, but it mentions. The watcher's weight on Tolman's head, the seed of the hammer burns the ancient tree. And while this, you know, seems 
you know, there's some things, you know, it, it seems so obscure, but when they, they talk about it, um, once again, there's this mention of Arter Hawkwing's armies returning from across the sea, and they seem to connect this idea with, with that. This prophecy seems to be connected with that. And we know that something is going on, um, in, I think, Toman Head and, uh, Almuth Plain. Because there's been a cohort of white cloaks. Well, that, but, but when we were (laughs) with those white cloaks who are the worst, uh, it was mentioned that there were strangers. And I believe on that occasion, Arter Hawkwing's armies were brought up. So there's something going on that has to do something with Arter Hawkwing. Now, they don't all believe it necessarily. I think Varen even says that she believes that, you know, all of those that went across the sea are long dead. But just because she believes it doesn't make it true. Yeah. So. Uh, that is the, That is the core right there of part of Baron's character, in my opinion. She has her beliefs and thoughts, but at the same time, she's very much one that keeps an open mind to, just because I think that, I could be completely wrong. Some people are very set in their ways. Baron is very quick to change if the evidence is put to her that it's different. I I, I would say she's she's a true scholar. Definitely. Uh, She, you know, she, she has what she knows and what she believes, but if the evidence leads another way, um... You know, which to me, in my opinion, that's what good scholarship is. But, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's Varen. Um, and she's, as, as Moraine remarks, she's not so out of touch as it may seem. <laughs> yeah. Because she has figured out, first of all, that one of the boys from Emmonsfield can channel and then makes a further leap to say one of them must be the dragon. Yep. <laughs> and the thing is, just because they're stuck in, you know, just because they're they they like to study constantly and they don't really pay they don't seem to pay attention to everything that's going on, they're just aloof, you know what I mean? It just means that they're not taking the time to point out that they know everything. I think that was a mistake that um Moraine, I already kind of caught this. I, I was kind of suspecting it before. I'm like, just because they seem, you know, they're taking other, they, they seem like they're not valuing the same things that you are. It doesn't mean that they don't notice everything and that they're not putting everything together. I actually was not too surprised that Varen knew more than what she was letting on. I mean, because she is an intellectual, she is a scholar, she is studying everything. She just, and I think, like she said, she finds this interesting. Therefore, she's going to mention it. Well, I think we're allowed to be a little bit shocked along with Moraine and Swan here because the secret of their plan has literally been a secret to... They were sworn to secrecy by the former Omerlin when they were girls 19 years ago. And as far as they knew, nobody else knew. They'd been working in secret this whole time and all this entire time, Varen knew. (laughs) Uh, or at the very least she put it together at some point in the last 19 years and just decided it was not important enough to bother anybody else with yeah (laughs) i i would say it's more the case of she 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 put it all together um 
My question is, is can she be trusted? You know what I loved? I love the reaction. Varen just made one small comment. I understand it was a critical comment, but everyone just kind of like powered up. <laughs> it gave me the DBZ kind of like feeling. Like everyone just powered up instantly, just ready to just obliterate this this, this woman. Yeah. Just for that one comment. You you want to yeah. you, you want to talk about a visceral visceral reaction like we were saying before. That's exactly what that was. Uh, they just not even thinking about it grabbed hold of the power when she said that and 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 moraine seems to think that you know uh you know i i think she i don't know if moraine trusts anybody other than the omerlin yeah uh, but I, I it almost go ahead i was gonna say she she definitely is having doubts about varin right now even though they have a strong history you know, from from when they were, from when she and Swan were novices, you know, Varen was already full eyes to die and was very kind to them. But now she's, you know, she's questioning uh, this sister. Yeah, and it, you almost get the feeling because we end this little section of the chapter in Moraine's head, and we we get her reminiscing about how Varen was that shoulder to cry on when she was a girl and that kind of thing. But at the same time, you kind of feel like in her head she's preparing herself to maybe have to silence Varen. Yeah, I, she says <laughs> it's a, like I'll, I'll do like, what must be done. She, it's yeah, like she's it's putting she's cold. putting down a, a hamster or something. Like, hey, yeah. you know, you're really cute and fuzzy, but I, I'll stomp you if I have to. <laughs> you know, as a yeah. new reader, though, wow. this really showed me how how uh, you know, as a brand new reader to the series, it really showed me how. I guess serious this, you know, hiding the dragon reborn and discovering all this stuff really is like the extent of what this could do. Um, I guess, uh, <laughs> because I, uh, yeah. what was the, what was the, um, I guess the threat is that they would be stilled and I guess Rand would be killed. It's like, not even just the extent of like, Oh, we're going to kill, like we're going, we're going to gentle Rand. It's like, you guys are going to be stilled as well. Or I guess even executed oh, at this point. Yeah, they would be stilled and executed. Rand would just be gentled and then probably want to die. But yeah. uh, they don't have a reason to kill Rand after he's gentled. But the two of them for doing this, they would be stilled, gen like stilled and executed publicly. Like this is like uh, set know. an example, you know. Set an example. Yeah, this is an absolute betrayal of everything the White Tower stands for. To have to probably half the Aes Sedai. I mean, it is akin to blasphemy, basically, to let a man who can channel just walk free, uh, whether, and especially if he's the dragon, because half the people of the world, at least, are convinced that the dragon is just as bad as the Dark One. Like, he's going to destroy everything. Uh, and to just let him loose on the world is, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think they... The, the, uh, I think it's in the next chapter. Some of the Aes Sedai even, you know, talk about that. What did we just release on the world? Um, let's, uh, real quickly, we've got a couple more things to go through in this chapter. We get a brief, uh, brief stint from Perrin's point of view. And yep. that's where we find out it was, in fact, Leandrin who had pretty much set Amalisa and her lady searching. And it was for all three of them, not just Rand, uh, because in Parents' head we get this little memory of him stopping, and one of them finding him is like, "Go find 
you know, Leandrin Sedai. Uh, and then when he gets back to their room, Rand, first he asks about Matt because Perrin had been to visit Matt and Perrin's a little cold at first. And then Rand does try to, to apologize. Uh, you know, and, and I disagree. I disagree here. He didn't try to apologize. He just tried to act like nothing happened. No, I, I see. I disagree with that because I, I would, I would recommend go back and read that section because you're, you're in Rand's head at that point And, and he seems to be really trying his hardest to explain why he did what he did. Not, not that he, he's okay with it. Not that he's feeling good about it, but he's trying to help get Perrin to understand, look, this is why I did it. I'm not proud of it. I'm not happy about it, but, uh, and, and he, I, I, I think he truly is sorry for it. For me, he just kind of walked into it trying to, you know, make a little joke, not about what happened. And it kind of backfired, and then he was trying to explain himself, but he barely explained well, himself. I'm like, you don't even... N- number one, that's because Perrin was still being so cold, and he realized Perrin was still hurting by that. Number two, Perrin didn't really give him the proper opportunity to explain it, because, you know, there, there was that brief moment where he asked Ran, you know, something about, uh, you know are we going to go together? And Rand's like, I can't. And then he just storms out of the room. Cause so Rand is still convinced that, you know, he has to go by himself, but you know, and, and that, that's, that's what's causing the problem. It. Perrin in his mind is just seeing it as Rand wanting to go by himself is Rand thinking he's something special and he's too good for them. Now he's, you know, he's wearing these fancy clothes. He's, you know, hobnobbing it, learning the sword with land and I think Perrin is just feeling like, because he's already feeling isolated because of his eyes and because of all the wolf stuff. And I think this is just like pushing Perrin's buttons in the wrong way. I don't think it's intentional on Rand's part. And I don't think it's necessarily anything Perrin's doing consciously. But I think he's already feeling such a, such a certain way that the way Rand has acted has really just pushed all the wrong buttons. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, I think. You know, everybody's being kind of, you know, acting like a bunch of children in, in a little bit. But, yeah. you know, I, hopefully they'll eventually get over it and things will be like they need to be. One last thing before we move on to the next chapter is we get this moment of uh, Lan, after Perrin has left, Lan comes in and tells Rand, you've been summoned to meet with the Omerlin seat. And he's... Going through all of these things, you know, this list of things to prepare him, you know, you know, you, you, you say this, you do this, you kneel like this. Uh, one thing I think is worth mentioning is the little, the little pendant that Land gives him, uh, which we come to understand is the Red Eagle of Manetherin. Yeah. Which I was looking back, we were looking over the list of, uh, you know, men's, visions earlier there is a red eagle mentioned but it's connected with matt and not with rand is this the first time we see anything about the red eagle being connected with manetherin no they talked about it when the story of manetherin was told okay and they also talk about it at some point when the boys are reminiscing about manetherin i think it's after that battle where matt talks all weird okay uh 
So, but because one of the part of what Matt says in that point is like for the Red Eagle and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, okay. Uh, shall we move on into chapter eight? Sounds good. All right, let's keep it going. Michelle, do you want to read this one? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So Rand's audience with the Amarillo seat brings evidence that he is the dragon reborn, though he isn't ready to believe it. Moraine, Varen, and the Amarillo fear that they are released about what they are releasing into the world, but know that it must be done. Meanwhile, Nynaeve receives a gift from Lan, and after a run-in with Moraine, is more determined than ever to get some kind of revenge on her, and Rand seeks out Egwene to say his goodbyes. Uh, so we definitely have to start there was a lot going on in this chapter there was a lot and and uh we don't have a whole lot of time but uh let's let's really focus in on what moraine reveals calmly with no with no emotion really right you know just it's like it's like she's reading a children's story it's just yeah like so here this is yeah first first of all she knows more about tam than ran does all of this stuff about him leaving and fighting with the armies of Ilion uh, against Tyr and then fighting in the Aeol War. Uh, which, you know, the way... I, I thought about this while I was reading, but the way that, to me, they talk about the Aeol War sometimes feels like it should be a lot longer than 20 years ago. Yes, right? <laughs> it feels like it should be something, you know, kind of like we would talk about I don't know, you know, Vietnam or even World War Two, World War One. I. I know, I know, Tam's not that old, and he apparently fought there. But it just, it feels like it should be more than twenty years. But I, I, apparently, it's not. It's been about about you know nineteen twenty years since that war ended. So she didn't sugarcoat it either. Like, yeah, he came back from this battle, had a baby with him. <laughs> Yeah. Had a baby with him and this woman, and and you know I liked uh, Rand's reaction during this. Um, it, it's kind of it, it was it was pretty it was a pretty cool contrast though. Hearing Moraine's story and then hearing kind of Rand kind of superimposing it with what Tam was saying when yeah. he was delirious. I thought it was a really good touch. Yeah, yeah, and and that just you get into to Rand's head so much with that, and it, it you can tell it's bothering him. To think that, you know, and he, he's been dealing with this for, for months. This idea that Tam might not actually be his biological father. You know, we think back to what Lan said earlier in the book. Whoever raised the child is the father, but Rand is still struggling with, you know, Tam not being his, his biological father. And this doesn't help. You know what I yeah. like though? He's kind of like breaking apart when she was saying all of this. But then I think it was Suan that was asking about that sword. I think she wanted to see it or wanted wanted it maybe. And he just completely just, he got strong all of a sudden. And he was like, my father gave me the sword and he wouldn't let her touch it. So I really did like that, uh, that strength that comes from him defending the sword. It feels like it's his last piece of Tam, really. His oh, last confirmation that this is this is my my father gave this to me. It seems like the sword kind of gives him confidence when it comes to his relationship with Tam. Yeah, it's his it's his connection to his father. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't think Swan's necessarily wanting to take it from him, but 
what she's alluding to here is that she's wanting Varen to test it to see if it is a power rot weapon. Yeah. But Rand just reacts and is like, no. <laughs> and she's like, okay. <laughs> she's yeah. like, okay, okay, you can have it. All right. Did you guys kind of feel like, uh, it, it feels like sometimes when Moraine or even Suan kind of, it felt like they were kind of like manipulating Rand's like decisions of like, you know, we're going to go to Tarvalin and you know Matt's dying without his da- without his dagger, and Matt's going with Perrin and and everyone else to go and find the horn. But you can stay here if you want to go do something else. It just seems like. Do you feel like she was kind of manipulating the situation so that he he would choose to go with with Matt and and Perrin and and that group? They, uh, I think, what you're seeing here, and it's something uh, I think that really hits home in this section. They are trying to give him options, but you can also see that they're very noncommittal about trying to push him, at least openly, in any one direction. They're very much trying to make this his choice. They're wanting to give him options and kind of guide where they think he'll go, but they want him to pick what he does. I I, I kind of chuckled a little bit at the moment when... um... Rand says to himself, she's saying I can go as I want. And I wrote down in my notes is that actually she said you can go with Ingtar's party or stay in Faldara. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I don't think there were any other options. That was the two that were put before him. He interpreted as her saying, I can go where I want, but that's not what she said. <laughs> yeah. So there's really only one um one option before him yeah, i think and yeah you know they basically say tell him that you know if matt doesn't get the dagger back he'll die and so rand's whole thing the whole reason he's still here according to rand uh, is because he didn't want to abandon his friends he'll never see them again and so now he's faced with this dilemma he obviously should keep to his original plan go off on his own where he won't hurt anybody that would make sense but at the same time, Rand knows that Matt will die if he doesn't get the dagger back. And what if he can do something to help? Yeah. So he's kind of stuck here, I think. Really doesn't have a choice, but they want to make him feel like he has a choice. Or <laughs> he can stay in Faldara and, you know, get married. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because those women are uh, all about uh, Rand now. Yeah, after right. All that he's done in the women's <laughs> apartment. They were yeah. like, oh, my. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this young man needs him a wife to settle him on down. <laughs> that's what that's what he needs right now. And maybe he does. I don't know. He needs some direction, that's for sure. Or someone to squeeze his mind a little bit more. All right. Uh any other thoughts for you guys on what's happening right here? No. I had no I actually I had one question when, you know, when Rand is going on and on about how he will not be used and he mentions the names of false dragons that supposedly had been, you know, puppets on Tar Valen strings. He says that Tom gave him those names. Is that accurate? Because I'm so, I was remembering it another way. Yeah, no, you're remembering it how it happened. It was Balzaman uh, that gave him those names. Yeah, he doesn't want to say I, I, who gave well, him those. So he's using Tom as a scapegoat. I was just making sure <laughs> I remembered it correctly. Yeah. Uh by the way Rand still convinced that Tom is dead. Moraine, not so much. 
Um, yeah. That's an ongoing theme here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Moraine. Um, yeah. Rand thinks lots of people are dead. <laughs> Rand doesn't require very much yeah, proof to think he's, somebody's he's, dead. He's still convinced <laughs> that Balsamon is dead, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's move on to um, to Nynaeve yeah. and, and Lan. Michelle, I know you loved this moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what? I, I was fine with him giving her the promise ring. I've, I've, I've accepted Nynaeve and Lan. That's and essentially... You know what's interesting? <laughs> That's it. I like I like the fact that she was like behind him and he just sensed I'm like this is so like the notebook or <laughs> whatever. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you called it a promise ring because I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> that was what it was. He he, he said all these land terms with it. He said well, all these land terms with it, but it, it was a promise ring. It it is well, it is more than that, but that's the yes. vibe that I got off of it is that he's giving her a promise ring. <laughs> Uh, but it's but basically, it's significant though. Yes. Yeah, it it is something that he know like he's talked about how he can't ask her to marry him because for a bride's price all he could give her is widow's clothes. But this is the one thing he feels like he can give her and basically what this ring is is base and he says it anywhere in the borderlands you show that ring you'll have guest right. You'll have whatever you need you'll be taken care of. If you show this to a warder they will take care of you or they will get a message to me. You know, it is basically what he can do to protect her. It's this gesture of trying. He knows that he is sworn to go with Moraine. He is, and Nynaeve is headed to go train at the tower. They're obviously not going to be able to stay together for very long, at least. But he wants to do what he can to protect her because he cares about her, which is evidenced even more by what he calls her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh... Did I, did I spell that right? Mashiara? It's, yeah. it's, it's, they have pet names now. <laughs> well, we're told what it means, beloved of heart and soul, but also a love lost. So, I mean, I guess that's, <laughs> that's Rand's way, or Land's way of saying I love you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love you, but we can't be together. Uh, and that does. He said it like so a, many times. I mean, he says it, it repeatedly. It, it, it does almost sound like a, a Nicholas Sparks novel or something. Oh like yes. That. Oh yes. Uh, I've never never read one of those, but I, I know enough. I think they're all you know. Some, it's all the same recipe. Something I'm, along I'm those sure. lines. If you listeners, if you enjoy Nicholas Sparks novels, I mean, we're glad that you enjoy that. Uh, not my cup of tea, personally, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Hashtag so. disclaimer. <laughs> Just don't want to. Just don't want to turn anybody off, you know. Um, but that is what it sounds like. Uh, yep. And so then we go. We hop over from Nynaeve and Lan to our other, uh, AKA lovers, <laughs> uh, Rand and Egwene. Yeah. Uh, and their farewell. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that that goes on in this little section, like with the the relationship between Nynaeve and Egwene, how it's changing. We get a little bit of that. Uh, but I guess the main focus here is the, I mean, it's pretty much a, you know, Rand saying his goodbye to Egwene. Yeah. Even to the point, you know, he, he's convinced, he says that, you know, they won't see each other again. But even if they do, he thinks that by that time when she's, you know, an Aes Sedai, she will feel completely differently about yeah. who and what he is. Whereas she is like... No, you're gonna. I'm gonna go become an Aes Sedai, and I'm gonna help you. Yeah, (laughs) 
So it's very idealistic and optimistic on her part and very pessimistic and weary on uh, Rand's part. Which, you and know, I'll that's, give that to Egwene. You know, that's kind of been, you know, and I think we've mentioned this before for for all the for all the bad things we've said about Egwene <laughs> over the yes. over the course of of these episodes, you know, she has often been the optimist. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say. I, 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 that's one thing I do like about Gwen. She's always trying. She's, she can see when they're feeling just down, and she takes a dire situation and she tries to look on the bright side. So yeah. I do, I do appreciate that. She's always positive with with that kind of situation. Right. Yep. Well, uh, so shall we get into some final thoughts? Final thoughts. I think so. All right. Uh, Michelle, you you usually go first, so go ahead and go first. <laughs> no problem. Like I said, uh, for these past few episodes, I I like getting other um like other perspectives, and and I I hope we do s- sort of start getting that other side. Like I, I want to get more perspectives from like dark friends and hopefully a trollic at some point. Maybe we'll get revisited by Narg sometime in the future. I want to get some more. Like now we know that they write. Like I I. I want to learn more about them. Um, and like I said, I hope that we keep on this. We keep this up with getting this Aes Sedai, like getting it, getting this insight into the Aes Sedai. It's so interesting to see the inner workings and the fact that they're not, yeah, they're sisters, but they're not all sisters. It's like, there's still, there's still some infighting. Sure. Uh, Michelle still believes Narg is out there somewhere. Oh yes, he is. <laughs> uh, you know, I think what, I really enjoyed the most about these chapters was uh, the sheer amount of information that we get about, you know, well, I, probably my favorite thing is the information we get about Tam in, oh, yes. in chapter eight and everything that Moraine reveals to us. I really do feel for Rand because it's not helping his situation with his doubts but I love getting all of that information, plus the information about, you know, how they know that the dragon's been reborn. Uh, we yeah. didn't talk much about that, but they heard a a foretelling when they were accepted, I believe. And, you know, they knew in that moment that the dragon had been reborn. As you said earlier, Stephen, they were sworn to secrecy. And they pretty much made that their mission for the past, you know, roughly 20 years. So, by the way, this is where we get a confirmation of how old uh, our main characters are, because <laughs> they were, you know, they were all born around that same time, nineteen to twenty years prior. So there we go. We finally got there. That. We go. We finally, finally got that as an o- official confirmation. Uh, no white cloaks in these chapters, uh, at least not that we know of. <laughs> uh, and that's always a good thing because white cloaks are the worst. Stephen. Got any final thoughts for us? Just that I love how much uh, interconnectivity and how much, like, the prophecy stuff, to me, is just so much fun. I love it. Uh, Every time I read it, it's just fun connecting these invisible threads uh, through the books and whether, and, like, the fact that there are dark prophecies, not just good prophecies, and just as likely as the good ones are to be fulfilled, so would the dark ones be. Uh, so it's very interesting there, and uh, I, I just there's a lot going on here, 
Um, and a lot of things, I, I love that we're getting more information about the other Aes Sedai and kind of seeing how they relate to each other, like Michelle said, especially the almost outright hostility between the Reds and the Blues uh, here and Leandrin and everything. It's just really fun to me. So I enjoy all of these chapters and just for the amount of foreshadowing there's in there is in them. And uh, also just, I also, one of my favorite scenes in this first half of the book is the whole scene between Lan and Rand when Rand, when Lan is getting him ready. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a father and son yeah. kind of thing uh, going on there. And I just love it. Like Lan is, despite the fact that his allegiance is to Moraine, he's developed this bond with Rand over this last month and a half of training him. And he really wants to, you know, take, make sure he has the best chance that he can have. And so I, I love that, how, how he's teaching him how to act and what to say and how to do everything. Uh, it's very uh, fatherly of him, which is a, a nice new layer to land that we haven't really seen before. That's true. Yeah. I, I I guess I guess fatherly is all right. I guess for me it was more of like a older brother. I guess I know Rand is Lan is old enough to be Rand's father, but I just see their yeah. relationship a little bit differently. But it still works out the same. He's still kind of the mentor, yeah. you know, to the younger man. But you know, yeah. if you want it to be father son, that's fine. Now, I don't think he. I don't think it's necessarily that their relationship is a father and son. I just think that in that moment it came yeah. across as like. These are the things that, in this situation, Tam would be doing, but Tam's not here, and so Rand is stepping up to make sure he's prepared yeah. in that sense. I don't think necessarily that Rand sees Lan as a father or or that Lan sees him as a son. I just think that the, for that one moment in time, that bond was kind of there. Right, right. Uh, shall we go ahead and wrap it up then? I think so. Folks, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. It's been a blast. Uh, we can't wait to see y'all next time. Uh, next week, we will be going over chapters 9 through 12 of The Great Hunt. Uh, in the meantime, though, we'd love if y'all could go and subscribe for us, uh, leave us a rating or, or a review, or uh, even better yet, we would love to just hear from you guys. So reach out to us. Uh, we're on Twitter at the at Wind Beginning. We're on Instagram at the Wind Was a Beginning. Uh, Facebook and YouTube at the Wind Was a Beginning, a Wheel of Time podcast. Or you can always just email us at the Wind Was a Beginning at gmail.com. Uh, we would be ecstatic to chat with any of you guys. So please drop us a line, reach out. We would love to hear from you. Yep. Uh, Otherwise, we will see y'all next week with chapters 9 through 12. Woo! See you later, everybody. See you all. Good night, folks. Good night.